Well, good morning. Happy Fourth of July, or happy Treason Day, maybe if like you're a royal sympathetic, I guess. Wow, tough crowd. All right. <laughs> Isn't it awesome that like seriously, 200 years ago we um we committed treason, and here we are. Like this is. I love, I love America. I love America. Um, let, let me just start off today by, uh, let's take a moment. What we want to do at all of our campus, campuses was uh, pray uh, for our nation. Uh, I think that video is a little indicative of where we're at as a nation. It's, uh, it's strange, but also I want to take a moment to rejoice. Um, something really strange has happened in, uh, in American culture, primarily over the past uh, maybe two or three years. Uh, it's definitely for the first time in my lifetime. Maybe other people uh, can can tell me different though. But it, it's become popular or, or like virtuous to almost pile on to America, right? Like to to uh, be negative about America. And, and hear me just say this: as a church, we don't want to contribute to that. As a church, we do want to um, we do want to recognize. Um, that as Americans, we are the freest people in the history of the world, like anywhere on the timeline. Uh, that's not to say America's got it figured out. Uh, we've, got, we've had a lot of stuff we had to figure out. We've got a lot of stuff we still got to figure out. But we are, are, are glad to be an American, glad to be Americans. And we uh, channel my inner Lee Greenwood there. And we, uh, we want to pray for our country and celebrate our country. Uh, for all those Office fans out, out there, uh, there's a line from The Office. Creed Bratton says this in one of the episodes of The Office. He says, I've already won the lottery. I was born in the U.S. of A., baby. And uh, that's absolutely how I feel this morning. And uh, so I just want to uh, invite you guys to, to celebrate with me uh, this 4th of July and to pray for our nation. So will you pray with me really quick? God, thank you uh, so much for your uh, providence in history, God, that has brought us to this point. Uh, Lord, we know as a nation, dear, dear Father, we have not been perfect. And we um, pray for your grace to be extended to us in our imperfections, dear Lord. But Lord, we do celebrate um, just the privilege of being born uh, here or having come here, dear God, and being an American, dear God, being in a place where we can um, celebrate uh, Jesus Christ and live out our faith, dear God, with freedom that was bought at great price, dear Lord. And so, dear God, on this 4th of July, we rejoice in that today. God, we do um, pray for our leaders Father, at this church, we prayed for the last president. Dear God, we're going to pray for this president, and we'll pray for the next one, Father. Uh, Whoever's in that office, we pray that you would grant an uncommon wisdom. We pray that you would grant um, grace, if possible, to save their soul. And Lord, we pray that you would, um, as a nation, bless us so that we might turn back. And Father, we understand... Father God, if repentance is possible in this nation, it will be only because of the presence of your church, and we pray that we would accept that challenge to be missionaries to the culture. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we're done with the 4th of July, primarily because I can't find the 4th of July in Philippians chapter 2, which is where I need you to open up your Bible to, okay? Open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Let me go ahead and do this. Let me tell you the goal of what I want us to see from the Scripture today. Today, from the Scripture, I want us to see that God intends for the Christian life to always be moving forward, okay? That is God's goal, God's design, God's intention for the Christian life, that we always uh, be moving forward. And, and He kind 
kind of spells out for us how we are to move forward. Now, this, this process of moving forward in our relationship uh, is a big theological word. It's called sanctification. It means growing into God's image. It means moving forward into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to see today from the text. This is God's design. Now, the great temptation, if I can introduce it and set it up this way, the great temptation is for Christians to begin to move forward or to try to move forward or to think they can move forward in cruise control versus moving forward with some intentionality. Let me kind of spell out what I mean by everybody. Everybody's got cruise control in their car, right? I got a 2004 runner. The cruise control doesn't work anymore, so I'm jealous of you if you do, okay? But we get in in our cars. We get on 385, right? We pop the cruise control on, turn the music up, and we move forward, but we move forward with zero intentionality, and and a lot of times we kind of zone out, right? The temptation is to go through the Christian life thinking that that's how you can progress in the Christian life. The problem is that 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 doesn't uh, have, it doesn't contain any measure of intentionality. And when we look at Scripture, that is not how God says the Christian life has supposed to be lived. That's not how God says the Christian life moves forward. Instead, the Christian life, uh, what the image we oftentimes get, get in Scripture is not of something like a cruise control, but is like a man moving forward in a race. A lot of times we see the language of running the race that has been set before us. Paul uses this language in other places. And we're not going through life on cruise control, but we're running to finish our race at all at any means necessary. Let me give you an illustration for how I think this kind of plays out. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. And it was uh, before we moved here, probably, I guess, a little over five years ago now, I got really big into distance running, okay? Can I just tell you that's a mental illness? Like, I don't know why people, like, like running, like, a long ways. But anyway, I, I did. Maybe it was a bad season in life. I don't know. Um, I got really into distance running where I wanted to run like half marathons and marathons. So I ran a half, uh, signed up to run a full marathon and trained for this full marathon all throughout the summer, going into the fall, um, ready to run this marathon in November. Now, uh, I tell you all this because the it setup's pretty important. When you train to run a marathon in, in November in Georgia, like you're hoping for like 60 degree weather, right? When you start, maybe you finish, it's getting around 70, 75, but you're not, you're trying to be done before it gets like 90, 95, right? So me and Jenna go down uh, to Savannah, Georgia. Uh, we wake up the next morning. We actually, we found out later, Jenna was a few weeks pregnant at this point. Um, life changed pretty drastically, but that's another sermon, okay? Um, so we go down to Savannah. We get ready to run this race, or I get ready to run this race. Jenna's like, go Dallas, all right? <laughs> and we wake up that Saturday morning, and it is like at 6.30 in the morning, 85 degrees, okay? And like 120% humidity. It's insane. Like I didn't, like I thought it stopped at like 100. Like evidently that scale goes on up, all right? It was like 120% humidity. And by the time we finished that uh, race, it was in the hundreds. I tell you all this to like tell you the conditions. Literally three people died that day. Like it was, it was a crazy day. Like people were dying on the race course. And so we, we started out the race. I actually came across one of the people who had fallen out. They were about to do the defib paddles on him. So I stopped and prayed over this guy. And the doctor looks at me and says, son, you can either quit the race or you can keep going, but you can't stay here. Right. And for whatever reason, after seeing that, I thought it was still a good idea to like finish the race. Okay. 
And so I get to about mile marker 16, all right, 16 miles in, uh, marathon's 26 miles, and my legs start to cramp unbelievably, okay? Now, anybody who's ever done any kind of athletics knows that this is a real big problem because it's a lose-lose situation. There is no win. Because guess what? If you keep going, guess what's going to happen? You're going to cramp. And if you quit, guess what's going to happen? You're going to cramp, right? There, it, it's an impossible situation. So, like, it's pretty obvious to all around me that this is what's happening because I'm kind of, like, wobbling at this point instead of running. And this guy comes by me, take, like, reaches into his, like, little running fanny pack, okay? I was like, dude, that's a bad fashion statement, but here we are. He reaches in, grabs two pills out of his pocket, puts them in my hand, and says, here, take those. To which I, with no questions whatsoever, <laughs> pop them in my mouth, Right? And after I took them, I looked at him and it like said on me like, oh my Lord, I didn't ask. And he could, he could, he could tell. He was like, don't worry, they're salt tablets. To which I was like, thank God they're not like ecstasy. I was like, I was like this, this, could, this race could go a lot differently than I thought, right? And so he, he gives it to me and all of a sudden I realize that's what's going to get me through. So like I start taking salt packets and just like putting them in my mouth, like paper and all, like just trying to survive, right? I get to about mile marker 20, and here's what kind of starts going through my head. Like, okay, multiple people have passed out, but I've come this far. I, I'm not going to stop right now. Like, here are my options. And like, this became a very surreal thought because I realized it was all of a sudden possible. I was like, you can either finish or you can die. But those are your two options, right? I told you, mental illness, okay? And, but then it hit me, like, with that whole thing playing out, that was a real possibility, Right. Like people were already like dying. And so that that was my mindset as I as I started approaching the final miles. And the reason I thought about that is because the more I think about what Paul is laying out for us in Scripture, that's supposed to be our mindset versus cruise control in our way through the Christian life versus just popping on the cruise control, coming in, going out and never thinking anything about it. We're running a race that we're willing to die before we quit. So that's what Paul's going to lay out for us here in Philippians chapter 2. If you got your Bible, read with me. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Here's what the Scripture says. Therefore, we've got to stop. Remember, remember if you were here last week, whenever there's a therefore, we've got to stop and go back up. If we're going to understand what Paul's got to say here, because there's a therefore there, we need to back up a couple verses. All right. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to go to verse 9 right here. It's going to stay on the screen. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul, what's Paul saying? We talked about this last week. Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. This is the universal reality of all of life that you can bow your knee now or you can bow your knee later, but you're going to bow your knee to the king. Okay? Verse 12, because of that, in light of that, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but, uh, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Trembling, not trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let me read it again for those of y'all who are in the back. You didn't hear it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Read complaining or criticizing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So here's what Paul does. Paul is answering this question of how do we uh, take the cruise control off and decide that we are going to move forward, we are going to run this race, and we are willing to do it at all costs. Like, how do we move forward in the Christian faith? Paul is going to answer that question in three parts through verses 12 through 18. So the question is, how do we move forward? He gives us three answers. The first answer is this. The first thing we have to do if we're going to move forward is we have to take responsibility for our faith. We have to take responsibility for our faith. Now, I want you to notice here the urgency that Paul is communicating with. These are action terms. He says, he says much more obey now, right? This is urgent terms. Keep doing this. Because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, do this much more. He says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These are action terms, and they are an urgent call. This is not something in Paul's mind that can be put on the back burner. He, in other words, what Paul is saying is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me give you like the Southern Baptist way of saying that. It's this. Make sure that you know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's saying this is, this is too important. Remember what we talked about? Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and every knee is going to bow. What he's saying is that this is too important to be wrong about it. He's saying that heaven is too good, hell is too hot, and eternity is too long to be wrong about this reality. He wants us to be sure to know that we know that we know that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's urging us to take this. So he's saying, he's trying to help us understand that we don't get to put this on the back burner, set it on cruise control, and just go through life. This is far too important for that. This has eternal consequences. And if we're not ready to take on those eternal consequences, then we may be making an eternal mistake. He says we have to make sure, we have to know that we know, we have to take responsibility. So the question for us becomes, if, Paul, if what Paul's urging us to do is to take responsibility for our faith and grow, the question becomes, how do we take responsibility for the Christian faith? How do we take responsibility to make sure that we know that we know that we know? How can you leave here today and know that you know that you know? Okay, I'm going to stop saying that because it's getting to be tiring, all right? But how can you do that? Paul offers us two things. How do we take responsibility? He offers us two quick suggestions, okay? The first thing we have to do is reject passivity. The second thing we have to do is pursue obedience. Let me show you how he says this. To take responsibility, we have to reject passivity. Notice what Paul is calling for here. He is calling for an active and ongoing uh, personal ownership of the faith, right? He says, that you should work this out. These are active terms. The temptation for Christians is to begin to believe that faith is something that is passive, right? We're living life, and Jesus is just kind of in the back seat, and we'll check on him every now and then, but it's not so active that it, it, he belongs up front in the driver's seat, right? It, it, this is why he uses active language. Do this much more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The implication is that we should be doing things, we should be pursuing a relationship of actions to know that we know. In other words, we should be pursuing good works 
We should be pursuing lives of prayer. We should be pursuing reading our Bible because that is how we are reassured. That is active faith that expresses itself and reassures us that we have a relationship with Jesus. So hear me say this. You, come, you might come to me. You might say, Pastor, I want to know that I know that I know. I want to know how that I can, I'm saved. How do I know? All right? And I, if I ask you, well, when's the last time you pray? And you say to me, well, I don't know. Can I just tell you, I don't know either. Right? I don't know if you're saved if you can't tell me when the last time you participated in your relationship with Jesus. You might come to me and say, uh, I want to know that I'm saved. If I ask you, when's the last time you read your Bible? And I, you say, I don't know. Then I don't know either. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying any of that stuff saves you, but that stuff is how we know that we are saved. So we have to reject passivity here. We can't be passive about the things of God in our life. We have to embrace them and pursue them. See, the temptation for most of us most of the time is to fall asleep at the wheel. Anybody ever fallen asleep while driving? Isn't that a miserable feeling? God, it's like, it's like the, the scariest feeling. <laughs> Literally, the, the, this has been maybe two or three weeks ago. Um, I had to get up at 4 a.m., okay? Now, let me just talk to you guys for a second. Some of you people in here like doing that. Talk about mental illness, okay? Like... <laughs> Like you ever, there's this, this line on the office where the morning air makes people sick. It makes me sick, okay? Like at 4 a.m., I'm not getting up, okay? But I, I had to. I, I, co I was coaching a 5 a.m. CrossFit class. I had to get up at 4 a.m., so I went and coached the classes, right? And I went back on my day, got to about 3.30, 4 o'clock, right? And so I'm coming back home, and I got to where Simpsonville crosses Fairview, all right? I mean, Main Street crosses Fairview in Simpsonville. Everybody know what I'm talking about? There's two uh, car washes there because what we need in Simpsonville is another car wash place or another oil change place, okay, right? Go to AutoX and see the Griffiths. You get both in one place, okay? I'm telling you, they're going to be more. They're going to be just car washes everywhere, right? So that was nowhere in the sermon notes. I pulled up to that red light, and the, the, red, the light was red, right? And all of a sudden, I remember looking right at the new car wash that was going up here. And the next thing I remember is the, hon the, cor the car honking their horn behind me, right? And I, I, I literally woke up to see that there was no car in front of me, right? I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, and I drove, sped off, like, floored the gas. It was, it was super embarrassing, right? But this, is ha this happens to some of us sometimes, right? We fall asleep at the wheel. Evidently, Brett Mitchell does it a lot, the way his wife's looking at him. <laughs> but here's the thing. This happens to us in real life, but a lot of times this is what happens to us in our Christian faith. We take things like Bible reading, we take things like prayer, we take things like good works, we take things like church attendance, we take things like serving in church, none of which saves us, but we become passive about those things and we put them in the back seat and all of a sudden we're asleep at the wheel and here's what happens. We don't have any assurance of our relationship with Jesus Christ because we're not active in any of those things. Hear me say this, if, I, if me and John didn't live in the same house for multiple years at a time, I wouldn't be real sure about my relationship with her, right? Because that's not how relationships generally work. It's the same way with Jesus. We don't get to fall asleep at the wheel. We have to be active in pursuing those things. And now let me just be clear, this isn't a personal problem. This is a corporate problem where we come in and put it on cruise control. As a church, we have got to decide that as Christians, we don't get to be passive but that we're going to do everything at all costs to pursue what Jesus Christ has laid before us. This is a race we're running. 
But not only do we reject passivity, Paul also lays out for us that we should, should pursue obedience. Notice what he says in verse 12. I think this is kind of interesting. He says, as you have always obeyed, but so also now much more. Right? So what he's saying is you always have obeyed, do so even more now and stop. Then he says, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's an interesting connection to be made because it seems to me that the connection Paul is making is that you can tie some level of obedience into whether or not you are, uh, you can tie working out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling into whether or not you are being obedient. So Paul wants for the people at Philippi to be obedient. Now, let me just say this. Obedience, a lot, for a lot of times, especially um, in the modern world, has become a bad word almost, right? Why is that? Because a lot of times we preach about grace, right? Now, let me just be clear. The gospel is a, is a message of grace. There is no amount of obedience that you can perform here this morning that will ever make Jesus love you. That's not how salvation works, okay? So we don't, we're not saved from our obedience, right? But if we are saved, obedience will flow from us. Obedience can be a bad word, but we got to remember that God commands things, and then God expects us to do those things. God's not just like a parent. Sometimes you feel like you're just talking to your kids, right? And they, you're just talking into an empty vacuum. That's not what God's doing here. He's not commanding things, not expecting us to follow through. So, like, make no mistake about it. There is no one who's a Christian who has not been forgiven by Jesus Christ's grace, but there is not, it's also true that there's no one who's a Christian who does not obey Jesus. The Bible does not have a category, right, for someone who is a Christian but never obeys Jesus. Can I tell you, even the church at Corinth was obeying in some stuff, Right? So, like, listen, we may obey to greater extent and lesser extent sometimes, but we are obeying. If there is no obedience in G to Jesus Christ in your life, then you should not have any reassurance that you are saved. What Paul is doing here is he's offering us ways to know that we're saved. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying is you need to reject passivity and pursue obedience. And if you do that, you can feel confident that you are saved. Now, the problem with that becomes that we can begin to think that we save ourselves by how good we act, right? Well, Jesus saved me in the first place, but now I got to keep, I got to, I got to be really good and really obedient to, in order to, for him to keep saving me, right? I grew up with some friends who grew up in a different denomination and, and right, they believed that if they sinned one time, they didn't keep on being obedient after their salvation. They lost it, right? Paul doesn't want us thinking that way. That's why verse 13 comes. So not only do we reject passivity, well, we, not only do we take responsibility for our faith to move forward, we also have to trust in God to move forward. Look what he says in verse 13. Verse 13, he says this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Now this seems to be a contradictory statement, right? Because what Paul has just done is make, said, make sure that you're saved by obeying, make sure that you're saved by rejecting passivity, but don't really worry about it because it's God who works in you to save you anyway, right? Now this, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I want us to see what Paul's laying out here. When Paul says God works in you, that, that, the way that's actually written in the Greek, is it seems to imply that God supplies the power in you for salvation. So here's kind of what it means. We provide the vessel, okay? That's how we take responsibility. We provide the vessel, 
and God provides the power. It's kind of like going to a, a gas station and filling your car up with gasoline. You're providing the vessel. The, the gas is providing the power. That's what God, Paul is saying God does here. That yes, you do have to take some ownership for your faith, but God's doing all the work. And Paul doesn't want us thinking that we can save ourselves, that we can earn God's favor. The point is, we must take responsibility for pursuing Jesus, but we don't ever have to worry that Jesus is not pursuing us. He's reminding us here that it's Jesus who came to earth. It's Jesus who lived a perfect life. It's Jesus who died on a cross. It's Jesus who rose again. It's Jesus who gives us a new heart. And it's Jesus who makes us grow. Now, let me just, that, that is the gospel. If it seems like these two things contradict each other, you, you, you need to take it up with Paul, not with me. Okay? Because this is the message of the Bible. That yes, you have to take responsibility for your faith. But at the same time, God and God alone saves you. The way that uh, the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon said this is you, it's man's responsibility and God's salvation and how those two things work together are like railroad tracks you're standing over, right? And when you're standing over railroad tracks, you've got two different rails. But when you look up into the distance, it looks like those two things come together somehow. And that's what God's offering us here. That yes, we have to take responsibility, but it's God and God alone who saves us. And here's what happens. We don't understand how that works, but it works because God says it works. So if we're going to move forward in the faith, we've got to trust God. We've got to take responsibility. And the last thing we've got to do is live with purpose. Now, here's what's really cool about verses 14 through 18. Okay, follow with me on this. Paul is about to turn and give us some of the most practical application that Paul gives, all right? And I don't know if you know this about Paul. Paul's a pretty theoretical guy, okay? He's a pretty philosophical guy. There's not a lot of times where Paul gives, like, concrete, practical suggestions. So what he's about to do is he's about to turn from, hey, take responsibility and trust in God, and he's going to turn and say, well, if you do those two things, this is what life should begin to look like. Okay, he offers us a bigger picture of life. He offers us life with a purpose. Look with me at verse 14. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You can read that as complaining or criticizing. Now, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I want you to do something for me. If you got a Bible and you write in it, I want you to circle that word all things. Because here's what's pretty convicting about this. I looked this up in the Greek just to make sure. All things means all things. It means everything. Now, you, you might think, man, uh, there's stuff in life that's worth complaining about. Evidently, Paul doesn't think so because he used the word that means all. Now, and let me be honest with you. I'd be more okay with this if the Scripture said do some things without grumbling or complaining. I'd be like, I could probably do that, you know. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And the imagery he uses here of grumbling and complaining should take us back to the people of Israel, right? Anybody remember the story of the people of Israel? They got taken out of Egypt in the Exodus. They get into the wilderness, and what happens? They start grumbling and complaining and criticizing Moses, right? And then what happens? They grumbled against Moses to the point where they missed the promised land and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And the implication seems to be that Paul's making here is that you can be like the people of Israel and you can grumble and complain so much that you miss what God's actually doing in your life because you're so focused on here that you're missing what God's doing. 
So you can grumble and complain if you want to, but you're going to be just like the people of Israel and you're going to miss out on all that God's doing. And let, let, let's just for a second talk about where the root of this, okay? Because uh, for the first time, I saw this passage in relation to the passage that comes before it with Jesus. So get what Paul just, we, sometimes we segment the Bible. We need to kind of read it together. He just said, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, suffered the humiliation of God the Father by being put on a cross to bear our sins. Skip down a couple lines. Hey, you guys should do all things without grumbling or complaining because you know who else did all things without grumbling or complaining? That guy. Now, as I think about that, there's a little bit of conviction that comes in there because what I realize is that so often we as Christians want something more than what Jesus got. We think somehow the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God, God who created the universe got a cross and we think we somehow deserve a crown. And if we don't get a crown, we'll grumble and complain about it. And what Paul is saying here is you can grumble and complain and what's going to happen, you can think you owe more than Jesus and here's what's going to happen. You're going to miss out on all that Jesus has got to offer you. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. John Newton had an illustration for this. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace had an illustration for this. And he said, imagine a man going into the city in a carriage to inherit a, lar to inherit a large estate, right? And he, he's made the several days journey, but as he's one mile out from the city, his carriage breaks down. And the wheels fall off and he can no longer use the carriage to get in the city. He said, what would you think about that man if one mile from the city you passed by him and he was sitting on the side of the road crying and complaining about the fact that his carriage had broke down? He said you would call him a fool. Why? Because all he had to do was walk the other mile. He said, no, if someone else understood that they were in the last mile to gain a great inheritance, you know what they would do? They would walk the last mile with rejoicing and praising on their lips because they were almost there. Can I tell you something, guys? We are in the final mile. I do not care whether you are 8 or 78. You are in the final mile. Everything that happens here is brief and temporary compared to what's coming. And now, so we should do all things without grumbling or complaining. And if I can be honest with you, I'm scared to say that because I'm scared God might make me believe it somehow. But this is what Paul offers out for us. That you should go through life understanding that you're in the final mile without grumbling or complaining. So he, said, he offers them a life with purpose. He says, don't complain. Then he tells them to point to Jesus. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What's the point here? He's saying you don't need to be complaining because you in fact have a purpose to shine the light of Jesus Christ to the world. So now we begin to see why complaining is actually such a big deal. Why griping and moping your way through life is actually such a big deal. Because when you do that, you are dimming the light for Jesus Christ that was supposed to be shining on others. It, complaining is like putting a basket over the candle, right? And so what was supposed to be shining out to other people, you're taking the light and momentary and covering it up so now other people can't see what God's actually doing. Grumbling, people who grumble and complain miss what God wants to do.
and if we can be honest, I think Christians should feel all a little bit of conviction here, especially over the way we've grumbled and complained over the past two, three, four years about culture around us. Can I just tell you, and let me get political, all right? Email me later, all right? Please, let's talk about it. We've complained so much about Republicans and Democrats over the past two years that we're saying the name Trump and Biden so much that we're not shining a light for Jesus. This is exactly the kind, that's, a, that's exactly the kind of thing that illustrates what Paul's saying here. That we grumble and complain about culture, and in doing so, we dim the light that was supposed to be shining to the culture we're complaining about. You might be saying, well, should I not you know, get involved in politics? Email me later. That's not the point. My point is that when you complain about everything in life, you're dimming that light down to nothing. So he says, don't complain. Instead, point people to Jesus. And then the last thing he tells them, live life with purpose. Pour it all out. I, lo I love these last two verses. Look with me at 16. He says, you should be holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or in vain or labor in vain. I love that verse right there so much. You know what Paul's saying to the people at Philippi? Do not mess this up for me. I came, I got you guys Jesus Christ. Don't make me look like an idiot before Jesus, all right? In other words, what he's saying is don't embarrass me. Can I just tell you as a pastor, I appreciate that. Y'all don't embarrass me. I see what show me y'all put on Facebook. Y'all stop. Y'all embarrassing me. And I, let me just say, let me refer, I don't want to embarrass you guys. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you guys. That's what Paul is saying. Let's live a life where we don't embarrass one another. Instead, let's make sure we get to heaven and we've run the race and we've not run it in vain. Let's think about what we're doing. And verse 17, here's how he closes it out. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with y'all. What's he saying? He says, even if my body, my life is to be poured out for this purpose, I'm good with that. Are you good with it? Man, I, I get that. That's awesome. Listen, I look at Upstate Church. I look at Harrison Bridge. I look at First Baptist Simpsonville. And here's what I would say. I'm willing to pour it all out. I love that. The question that Paul begins to leave for us is, are we collectively willing to pour it all out? So real quick, in closing, two options for us. Number one, maybe you're here today and you can't know that you know that you know because you don't have a relationship with Jesus to start with. You've never made Jesus the Lord of your life to start with. Well, here's what you can do. Jesus is Lord of Lords. You can bow today. You can come to Him today and say, Jesus, I don't want to be Lord of my own life. I want You to be Lord of my, own, my life. Will You save me? You can pray something just like that in this worship song. Here's what I can tell you. God will save you because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe that's you today. I would love to talk with you about that. I'd love to pray with you about that. For those of us who are Christians, the question for us is simply this. Are we going to run the race that's before us? Are we going to be intentional with moving forward, taking responsibility, saying, Jesus, we are coming hard after you? Or are we going to be content to put it in cruise control? Every one of us would have to decide. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that your word would compensate for the foolish ramblings of a man. God, this week as I've just been challenged by your Holy Spirit, I pray that what has happened here will be about you, Jesus, and not about me. 
God, I pray that what happens at Harrison Bridge would build your kingdom and not my kingdom. Dear God, I pray that what is going on in this place would be about your name receiving glory and nothing else. So dear God, Holy Spirit, will you come and have your way amongst us as your people? so that we might be closer to you, so that we might take it off of cruise control, so that we might pour ourselves out, so that we might run the race before us, so that we might bow with every knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.